in your Bibles and go ahead and, uh, and turn to the first chapter of Ephesians. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Don't answer this out loud, but something to reflect on. Who are you? Who are you? The question that the caterpillar asked of Alice uh, in, in Wonderland where he blows the smoke rings. Who are you? And Alice has a difficult time answering that question, confused as she is about the various uh, things that she's experiencing. And our life is not anything like Alice's. Our experiences are probably very little like uh, Wonderland, uh, if you will. Um, nevertheless, that question, who are you, basic as it is, simple as it seems, uh, is actually a little harder to answer than you might originally think. There's a scene from uh, a movie called Anger Management. I'm not necessarily commending the, the movie to you, but uh, I thought of it as a good example of the, the, the struggle to come up with a way to even articulate identity. Who, who am I? Right? Who, who are you? Uh, and in, in the scene, Adam Sandler uh, is in a, a, a sort of a support group session uh, with a counselor played by, of all people, Jack Nicholson. If you can believe Jack Nicholson as a counselor, then uh, you, you're already on the way to um, suspending disbelief for this movie. Um, at any rate, uh, so the, the counselor, uh, Dave Nicholson, asked Adam Sandler, whose character's name is Dave. He, he says, so tell us about yourself. Who are you? And Dave begins to answer by telling us some things about sort of his work. He says, well, I'm an executive assistant at a... a, a a paper company or something. I don't remember what kind of company it was. And, and he kind of interrupts him. No, no, no. Don't tell us what you do. Tell, tell us who you are. And so Dave reconsiders. Oh, okay, uh, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I uh, like playing tennis on occasion. And once again, the counselor interrupts and says, no, you're, you're, you're telling us about your hobbies. We don't want to know about your hobbies. We just want to know who you are. And so he tries again. He says, okay, uh, I'm a nice, easygoing man, uh, perhaps uh, a little indecisive at times. And once again, the counselor interrupts and says, Dave, Dave, you're describing your personality. We just want to know who you are. And at this point, Dave gets frustrated and sort of uh, like with some suppressed rage kind of goes like, I don't know what you want from me, you know, like that, like Adam Sandler does. Uh, And... uh, and the counselor, Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson goes, I think we're getting a picture. Uh, so it's, you can feel his frustration in the moment because just as Dave seems to be uncertain of exactly what he's looking for in an answer or even how to articulate an answer to who are you, uh, we can feel the very same thing, the same challenge. If someone says, hey, who are you? We might do the same things. We might start listing off jobs or, or relationships or responsibilities that we have or personality traits. So I'm kind of like this or I'm kind of like that. Um, so it's a deceptively simple question. When you boil down your personhood to the very core, the very essence of your identity, who are you anyway? There's a theological thread running through uh, the entire book of Ephesians, and really the rest of of Paul's writings, honestly, uh, that provides perhaps the most potent and essential answer to that question. Who are you? And it's the doctrine of union with Christ. The doctrine of union with Christ, which we see throughout 
this passage uh, and throughout this letter. I hope that after exploring it a little bit uh, this morning that, that you'll be better equipped to answer that most basic question of your identity. Who are you? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I'll read these aloud as we begin. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Well, we're, we're taking three individual passes, if you will, through this paragraph, through verses 3 through 14, which in the original uh, Greek is just one long sentence. So you really can't break it down into smaller sections without doing uh, utter damage to uh, even the flow of thought uh, that, that Paul has. But the, there's so much in this passage and so many riches for us to find, I thought it would be worth exploring the entire paragraph from different angles. Uh, and so last week, our, our first pass through the, the paragraph uh, revealed to us four spiritual blessings that belong to Christians. And so we walked through what each of those meant and how ultimately those blessings are really about God. They're about God's glory and that his glory would be praised. Um, and th those four spiritual blessings uh, are that, that we have been chosen by God. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We have been endowed with an inheritance, given an eternal inheritance, and then that we have been sealed with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. So he's placed the Holy Spirit into our lives to indwell us as a down payment, as a guarantee that we will take full possession of the inheritance that he has set aside for us. And so last week we went through those four spiritual blessings and why they're good news and how they're ultimately about God. If you weren't here to, to hear that, the message is online. I'd encourage you to, to go back and listen to it. Our second pass through the paragraph uh, today uh, we're, we're going to zero in on uh, a particular doctrinal truth, the spiritual reality that makes all of those blessings available to us, and it's the doctrine of 
union with Christ. It's not spoken of uh, as, as often as I think it probably should be. And in fact, in my own journey uh, with, with the Lord and, and, and study of his word, I'm in something of a, a, a renaissance, I guess, regarding the doctrine of union with Christ. I'm, I'm beginning to see it everywhere. Uh, I've got a book that I'm reading through right now that, that's been helpful and, and encouraging. So this is, a, this is a topic that I find is rich uh, and, and not just theologically loaded, but, but, uh, but for our spiritual devotion and for our relationship uh, with God. Um, so let me give you a quick definition. Or actually, uh, before I give you the definition, John Murray, uh, theologian of the 19th century, he said this, uh, excuse me, 20th century. He said, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. That's the way that John Murray spoke of it. And if you survey all the various uh, sort of theologians, certainly conservative, evangelical, generally reformed theologians, you will find similar statements that, that, that elevate the place of this doctrine of union with Christ, the believer's union with him, uh, to this place of prominence. This is the center of uh, the doctrine of salvation. And it's a little bit of a wonder why it isn't spoken of more frequently or, or why Christians generally are not as aware of it as I think we, we ought to be. Let me give you a very quick working definition of the doctrine of union with Christ, and then we'll walk through how we see this in, in the text and, and some of, of what it means. Union with Christ means this simply. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. As a Christian, as one who has placed his or her faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been united to him by faith through the Holy Spirit in such a way that you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. That's the simplest sort of way to uh, articulate the doctrine of union with Christ. But as you find, just even beginning to, to look at this doctrine and, and study it, it's not simple. <laughs> there is great mystery here and depths uh, to, to, to mine. But I, I, I want to use uh, our time this morning looking into this passage through this lens precisely because it is so all over the place. Uh, in these verses. It, it's throughout the book of Ephesians, certainly, but in these verses specifically, as Paul enumerates the spiritual blessings that come to believers in Jesus Christ, the, the doctrine of union with Christ, though those words are not necessarily used, at least the word union isn't, um, it is pervasive. And you can see it in the phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in the beloved, or in whom. If you look through uh, that, that paragraph, you'll find, I think, ten times that that phrase is, is used. Um, so what we're going to do, we're going to look at two kind of broad categories here. We're going to look at the scope of union with Christ. That is, like, how big and broad is uh, this doctrine uh, in, in the mind and heart of God as he planned our salvation. Uh, the, the scope of union with Christ. And then secondly, the results of union with Christ. So because believers are united to Christ, what therefore is the, the reality that we, uh, that we live in? So the scope of union with Christ. Well, we see that the doctrine of union with Christ extends back in time to eternity past. 
eternity past. And you can see that in verse 4. He says, even as he chose us in him, in him, being in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Right? So, so our, our, our election by God the Father in Christ, he chose us in Christ, that is in relationship to Christ, in identification to Christ. Our election is in Christ, and that happened before the foundation of the world. So we're looking back to before history began, before there were any people uh, that could have been, uh, that could be saved, right? Uh, people didn't yet exist. In eternity past, when it was just God, Father, Son, and Spirit, he elected us in Christ. And you see as well, he says that he's predestined us for adoption to himself uh, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Look at this last phrase in verse 6. With which he blessed us. What is it that he blessed us with? This grace, this glorious grace of adoption and election. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved is, an, is another name or, or term referring to Jesus Christ. So he elected, he, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And by that election, by his predestining us for adoption, he has poured out grace upon us. How? In the beloved, in Christ. John Murray, to quote him one more time, he says, as far back as we can go in tracing salvation to its fountain, we find union with Christ. It is not something tacked on. It's there from the outset. So in God's mind and God's heart from before the foundation of the world was the purpose to unite sinners to Christ by faith. To take those who are outside of the covenant, outside of a relationship with God because of our sin that would separate us and break that relationship and make us worthy of judgment and condemnation. God's purpose from eternity past was to take sinners and to unite them to Jesus Christ, to place them in Christ. So he chose us in Christ in eternity past. So union with Christ is founded before the world even began. Union with Christ explains and defines our present reality. So if we look backward, excuse me, backward, I'm using my hands the wrong way. If you look backward into eternity past and you see uh, union with Christ, well, if you look around you right now into the reality that you live in and experience, you will find once again union with Christ. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption and forgiveness. Those are present realities, right? The work has been done. You're looking into the past, into the historical past to see Jesus Christ crucified and raised. But the current reality for sinners who have trusted in Christ is we have redemption. We have forgiveness of our sins. God has 
uh, bought us back, if you will. He's released us from bondage to sin, and he's forgiven us all of our uh, unrighteousness and our wrongdoing before him. How has he done that? In him, in Christ. So the, the reality that we presently live in is defined by union with Christ, that we are in him. And, you'll not be surprised, I hope you're seeing a pattern. We looked into eternity past and found union with Christ. We're looking into our present and finding union with Christ. So, you won't be surprised to learn that if you look into the future, eternity into the future, you will find union with Christ as the defining reality. Look at verse 11. In Him, again, that's Jesus Christ, in Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, right? In him, we've obtained an inheritance. That's yet to come. We have obtained the, the, the guarantee of it. We've, we've been told that it's coming and we get to begin experiencing life with him now. More on that later. But this inheritance is a future reality. It is something that God, Peter tells us, is keeping in heaven for us guarding it uh, by his power. And how do we have that inheritance? In Christ. It is through our union to Jesus Christ that this inheritance is ours. And if you look again down there at the, at the end of verse 13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the gospel, the word of truth, the gospel, and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, the role the Holy Spirit plays, in, as Paul tells us in this verse, is that the down payment of this inheritance. It's the guarantee, it's the promise that God will surely keep his word, that God will surely give you all that he has purchased uh, through Jesus Christ. And the way that the Holy Spirit comes to us in sealing us and guaranteeing our eternal inheritance is in Christ. So if you look into eternity future, you find that the inheritance that is coming and the guarantee that we have even now of the Holy Spirit in our lives, securing that inheritance, all of that comes to us by our union with Jesus Christ. We are united to Christ and thereby obtain inheritance and this guarantee until we acquire possession of it. John Murray again, he says, apart from union with Christ, we cannot view past, present, or future with anything but dismay and Christless dread. If we are separated from Christ, if we are not united to him, then past, present, and future is all bad news for us. It's not going anywhere good. By union with Christ, the whole complexion of time and eternity is changed and the people of God may rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Friends, your reality, past, present, and future, is that of a sinner who has been united to Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. That is the defining characteristic of your life and of your eternity. You are in Christ. Past, present, future. Praise God. 
So that's something of the scope of union with Christ, that it, that it encompasses all of history and all of the future, stretching from eternity past, uh, eternity past into uh, the eternal future in God's kingdom. Union with Christ defines who we are, defines our lives. So let's talk now about the, the results of union with Christ. So if this has been God's purpose from before the beginning, to unite sinners to Jesus Christ through faith. What are the results of it? What are the, what are the, the benefits, uh, the, the blessings of union with Christ? Two major uh, categories here. And of course, there's more that could be said, but I can't say everything that can be said. Number one, access to salvation's benefits. Access to salvation's benefits. That's the first and great uh, result of our union with Jesus Christ is that all the things, all the blessings, all the goodness that is wrapped up in what it means to be saved, all the things that Jesus Christ accomplished and purchased for his people, all of that comes to you through union with Christ. If you were not united to Christ, it would not be yours. You only receive the blessings of salvation because of the reality of union with Christ. Our union with Christ is necessary in order for us to actually obtain and experience the spiritual blessings that Paul is celebrating in these very verses. All those things we walked through earlier as a review, that he chose us and he redeemed us and he's endowed us with an inheritance and, uh, and sealed us with his spirit. All of those blessings of salvation only come to us because of our union with Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how much spiritual good Christ purchased through his death and resurrection if those spiritual goods do not make their way into the lives of sinners by our spiritual union with him. The 16th century uh, theologian John Calvin says this about the doctrine. So long as we are without Christ and separated from him, nothing which he suffered and did for the salvation of the human race is of the least benefit to us. To communicate to us the blessings which he received from the Father, he must become ours and dwell in us. And he goes on. Accordingly, he is called our head, referring to how Paul speaks of him, of the head of the church he is called our head and the firstborn among many brethren, while on the other hand, we are said to be engrafted into him and clothed with him, all which he possesses being nothing to us until we become one with him. So important is the, 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 the reality of our union with Jesus Christ. So important is that reality that the benefits of salvation would not be ours to enjoy if we remain separated from him. So it is the, the means by which, the spiritual means by which God extends the blessings, by, by which he pours the, the grace of salvation into our lives. It is through the means of uniting us to Jesus Christ, placing us into him, Let's quickly glance back through these verses and you'll find again that uh, each of these, these benefits of salvation that's listed uh, is closely connected to the phrase in Christ. 
or in him, some variation of it. Let, let's, let's look back uh, quickly. Verse 3, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That's a summary phrase, right? Every spiritual good that comes to you comes to you through union with Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him that we might be holy and blameless. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption in the beloved. If you go down a few verses after, or a few phrases after he said uh, the riches of his grace that he's blessed us with in the beloved. So I think that's connected to that predestination and adoption. He's predestined us for adoption in the beloved, in Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses. That redemption and forgiveness is only by virtue of union with Christ. Verse 10, he speaks of a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things on heaven, things on earth. That's actually going to be the focus of, uh, of our time next week. But it's in Christ that that plan to unite everything, all, peop- all uh, things on heaven, things on earth, in him. Verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You can see all through this passage as Paul enumerates the blessings, the spiritual blessings of salvation, they are every one of them connected to union with Christ. He's blessed us in Christ. He's adopted us in Christ. He's redeemed us in Christ. He's uniting all things, things in heaven, things on earth, in Christ. We've obtained an inheritance in Christ. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ. Christ. You get the sense he really wants us to get this, to see this, and to understand it. So the first great result of union with Christ is that all of salvation's benefits become ours through our union with him. Such that the spiritual reality of our lives is that we are connected to Jesus. We are one with him. The second great result of, uh, of, the, of the doctrine of union with Christ, the reality, rather, of union with Christ is communion with God. Communion with God. We sang uh, a little while ago in the church's one foundation. Let me find these, these lyrics. Speaking of the reality of, of the church in the, the hardship of the world, right? Where there's toil and tribulation and war and all these things going on and we're waiting for our peace. The final verse says, you know, even still, even with all that going on, yet she, the church, on earth hath union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. That's the line is speaking of. Uh, of the saints who have gone before, right? Christians who have died in Christ and are now uh, in in heaven with him. And so uh, I, I love that, that reality. Amidst the, the tribulation and the trials and the hardships of life, we now, 
the church now has union with God, uh, the three in one. So the, the great result of our union with Christ is that we have communion with him. Communion being fellowship, relationship. You know, it's, it's a common uh, sort of uh, trope uh, of Christianity, pe- the way that people have expressed uh, the reality of the Christian faith for a long time, at least since I was a kid, probably well before that, um, that, that Christianity is about a personal relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've heard that language, maybe you've used that language. Uh, it's true. Uh, I'm not in any way negating the, the language, but it was so commonly the way that it was put forward uh, as I was growing up in youth groups and things like that. Like this is, you want to kind of portray Christianity not as a religion, but as a relationship. Have you ever heard that that sort of dilemma? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm not quite as allergic to the word religion as some people seem to be, but the point the point is is taken that uh, that at the heart of the Christian faith is not just a set of rules that we follow or a code that we live by or things that we believe. At the heart of the Christian faith is a relationship that the sinner enjoys with God uh, and, and that the church collectively enjoys with God. It is union with Christ that gives that relationship its shape and its content. If you think about our relationship to God in terms of our union with him, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us, it, it, it strips away the, the possibly negative connotations that that personal relationship idea can have because it can start to feel very subjective, uh, very like it's not based on anything uh, in, in reality. Some people, by the way, probably don't have great experiences with personal relationships. So if you tell me that Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus, I might be like, I'm not really sure that I want a personal relationship with Jesus, right? Um, relationships have been really hard for me. So why, why, uh, why is that such good news? But it, it strips away the possible negative connotations of that and assures you of the simple fact that Christ lives in your heart and you are in his. Christ lives in your heart and you are in his. So when we think about a relationship with God, I think it helps us to actually, in our minds, connect that to the reality of this doctrine of of union with Christ. What does it mean that I have a relationship with God? Does that mean that we have conversations and I can hear his voice audibly to me and we tell each other jokes or go on dates or whatever. Like, uh, th- th- it gets very uh, nebulous and sort of uh, strange if, if you press it too far. But if you think about it in terms of, I am in Christ, I'm united to Christ, and Christ is in me, then it begins to give a shape to that relationship and a sweetness to it. Listen to John Murray one more time. He said, there is an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith. Believers are called into the fellowship of Christ and fellowship means communion. The life of faith is the life of love and the life of love is the life of fellowship or mystic communion with him who ever lives to make intercession for his people and who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It is fellowship with him who has an inexhaustible reservoir of sympathy with his people's temptations, afflictions, and infirmities 
because he was tempted in all points like as they are, yet without sin. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold metallic ascent. It must have the passion and warmth and lo- of love and communion because communion with God is the crown and apex of true religion. I like the way that even sort of removes the, the barrier between that false dilemma of is Christianity religion or is Christianity relationship? Well, if you take John Murray at his word, the heart of true religion is fellowship with God. It, it is very relational. That, that's what it comes down to uh, as, as a religion. So there, there's a sweetness, there, there's a joy, there, there is a personal identification with a connection with this living Lord who understands us, who has been through suffering and temptation and trial, yet he without sin, such that he's able to identify with us in those experiences. And so there is a a, a real warmth of of love and, and a relational experience with God because we are one with Christ and he is one with us. A couple of biblical examples of, of this kind of relational aspect of things. John 14, 20, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the, in the upper room on the night of his betrayal. Uh, and he's, he's just promised them uh, to send the Holy Spirit after he returns to the Father. And he says in John 14, 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then he goes on, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is relationship, right? God is making his home with us. That's what union with Christ means. It means God in the person of Jesus Christ has come to make our heart his home. He lives with us. That could be a little scary. That could be a little intimidating if you think about it. But the reality is, this is the heart of God. It's always been the heart of God to dwell with his people. He dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden. He had the people of Israel build him a tabernacle and then later a temple so that he could dwell in the presence of his people Israel, in the person of Jesus Christ, of course, who is the new tabernacle, the new temple. Uh, God dwells bodily, we're told in the book of Colossians. Uh, And now in this age, as, as the church, as those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, he comes to us by faith, by our, by our faith in him. He comes to us and makes his home with us. This is relationship and the heart of relationship. Just a few verses later in John 15, verses 1 through 11, Jesus gives the analogy of the vine and the branches. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. So he's the sort of source of life, the main trunk, and we're branches that sort of shoot off from the vine. And and the the branches are, are grafted into the vine, connected to the vine in such a way that the life of the vine becomes the life of the branches. It really is a, is a very poignant, a tangible and relational way to express the doctrine of union with Christ. You remain in me. He says, abide in me and I in you. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 
For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, that speaks not only of our, uh, of our weakness and our need to be plugged in, if you will, to that source of life and power in order to bear any spiritual fruit. It speaks to the, the warmth of relationship that Jesus is in us and we are in him and he abides with us. It's an amazing reality. The book I'm reading, uh, it's simply called Union with Christ. Uh, it's by a guy named Rankin Wilborn. Uh, and Rankin laments the fact that, that many, perhaps most Christians, experience a gap between what they believe and what they experience. I don't know if that rings true to you. I can certainly identify with it. Sometimes I have a very lofty idea about what Christian life should look like, feel like, be like. But the way that I live it or experience it sometimes feels cold or disconnected or, or difficult, right? So I'll say, you know, we, we might say or have these lofty ideals about uh, loving God and communion with God and closeness to God and intimacy with him. But what we feel a lot of times is very different than that. We feel distant. We feel like we have a hard time connecting with God. Or like when I pray, I'm like, is God even really hearing me? Like there's a gap often between what we believe and what we experience. Um, Really what that means, I think, is that our our hearts are not as confident in the gospel as our minds are, right? I could tell you very plainly what the gospel is and who I am because of Christ, but my heart maybe doesn't always believe it in the same way, with the same strength, right? Right? And he believes that the main thing accounting for that gap is union with Christ. Or really our, a lack of our understanding and awareness of our union with Christ. We don't rightly understand its reality and have thus neglected to apply its truth to our souls. So if we begin to see that we're united to Christ, that through faith in the Lord Jesus, God has plunged us, placed us into the life of his son such that we are in Christ, Christ is in us. His life is our life. Then maybe we'll begin to experience the shrinking of that gap between what we believe and what we experience or or what we say and what we feel. So I think it's a really important uh, doctrine. Union with Christ means... That his work is your work. You know, we read in in Romans 6 earlier that we were united with him in his death, buried with him in our baptism, right? And then in his resurrection, we were raised in new life. That's why when we do baptisms, we, we use language from Romans 6 to express that very reality. Buried with Christ in his baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. That's, a, that's directly from Romans 6. And it is expressing the reality of union with Christ. That's what baptism means. When you get baptized, you are publicly identifying yourself with Christ. You are saying, and the church community is saying, this person is in Christ. He's been identified with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So that uh, Christ's life is your life. It means that his standing is your standing. Jesus is in a good standing with God the Father. So are you if you're in Christ. His resources are your resources. Christ has endless resources of strength, wisdom, patience, joy, 
love, compassion, guess what? If you're in Christ, you have access to those things. There's a, there's a, there's a, a reservoir uh, of these blessings and these needs, these resources that are available to those who are connected to Jesus Christ by faith. We simply must take, we must learn to take from him what is his and to, to, to tap into that resource instead of trying to drum up patience or drum up wisdom or drum up love. We need to learn to, to, to take our love and our patience and our wisdom from the Lord Jesus. We're connected to him. It means that his future is your future. Christ's future is glory. Christ's future is reigning over the eternal kingdom. Of God, And guess what? Paul tells us in Romans 8, we are joint heirs with him. We will share in his reign. We will be co-regents in the kingdom of God. Not merely subjects, but even reigning with him, the Bible tells us. His future is your future. This is what union with Christ means. What is his is yours. What is true of him is true of you. Now, obviously, there's, there's lines that can't be crossed in terms of um, the things that are unique to Jesus because of his deity, right? Oh, well, Jesus is all-powerful. That must mean I'm all-powerful. That's, that's certainly not what this means. And actually, there are those who I think miss, uh, like in perhaps Pentecostal and kind of charismatic circles, who actually kind of misappropriate that. And they think, well, since Jesus has power over every disease, that means I should have power over every disease. And then I think we, people get off track in that way. So there's, there's limits, right? There's things to be said that are unique about Christ that, that can never be true of us because we're creatures, right? Because we're, we're limited in ways that he is not. Nevertheless, these, these realities, these spiritual realities of his life and his work and his standing and his resources and his future, all of those things are true of us who are united to Jesus Christ by faith. In Matthew chapter 3, at the outset of Jesus' public ministry, he comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. Uh, And in uh, Matthew 3, verse 16, Matthew uh, unfolds the scene in this way. He says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened before him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, apart from, uh, rec- from uh, marking the sort of anointing with the spirit that would uh, empower Jesus for his public ministry, and apart from being uh, one of the clearest scenes of, uh, 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 or expressions of the Trinity, the doctrine of, of the Trinity, and that we see Father and Son and Spirit all present and active in different ways at the same time. This passage gives us a glimpse into God's heart for us. It gives us a glimpse into God's heart for us because you know what union with Christ means? It means that the voice of the Father announcing his delight in his eternal Son says the very same thing about you. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. 
Friends, may we learn to walk in the goodness of God's love and delight in us. And as we walk in that goodness, may our eyes be lifted day by day to the glorious Christ in whom our lives are hidden and through whom all spiritual blessings flow. That question I asked at the beginning, who are you? It's a deceptively simple question. We can start to point to our personality traits or our likes and dislikes or our various roles and relationships. The most fundamental aspect of our identity is simply this. We are in Christ. Who are you? I am united to Jesus Christ. What is his is mine. What's true of him is true of me. His future is my future. His standing is my standing. I am the son or daughter of God, and he is well pleased with me. That is the fundamental identity for every follower of Jesus Christ because he has placed us into Christ by faith. May we grow in our own confidence in that identity and recognizing that because of the grace of God poured out on us in Christ, everything that is his is ours. Let me pray.